Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vagra Maradian, and hope that everybody has been having a great Veterans Day weekend uh, and has taken an opportunity to thank all of those uh, who have uh, done their part for the defense of the nation. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Wall Street posted its best week in two years as shares surged on positive economic news. The consumer price index came in lower than expected as investors hope that an improving economy will prompt the Federal Reserve to change course and halt additional short-term borrowing rate hikes that central bankers have said is necessary to quell inflation that still remains at more than 7%. The market is also considering the implications of the U.S. midterm election outcomes uh, that were the best for a sitting American president in nearly a century. Democrats will lose the House by only two or three seats and retain the Senate, whatever happens uh, in the Georgia runoff. Meanwhile, President Biden will meet with China's Xi Jinping uh, at the G20 meeting in Bali. Biden wants cooperation where cooperation is possible, uh, like on the climate, but Uh, Progress in cooperation and halting decoupling may be rhetorical, uh, given Xi and his hardline team. At the Zhuhai Air Show, COMAX 919 made a key flight, uh, indicating a a positive future for uh, China's indigenous airplane, albeit uh, with a lot of Western technology. The company announced 330 new orders and a partnership with Boeing to develop sustainable aviation technology, a move that was greeted uh, with skepticism in Washington. Uh, And indeed, everybody on this program has a lot of skepticism about whether or not those 330 orders are actually real or new. Ukrainian forces took back Kherson, prompting rejoicing and bitterness at Russia's brutal occupation, spurring calls for justice. Uh, This as South Korea becomes an even more important supplier uh, to uh, Ukraine, just as North Korea is a key supplier uh, to Russia. Obviously, the Korean Peninsula, as we discussed on Uh, Friday's show uh, are engaged in proxy wars of their own. Meanwhile, new weapons continue to pour into Ukraine from the NASAM's air defense system to refurbished tanks from Poland after Warsaw swapped their Soviet-era armored vehicles for new M1 tanks from the United States. Bulgaria bought eight new F-16 Block 70 jets, and Indonesia wants 36 Uh, new F-15s. And France unveiled a new defense strategy that reaffirms the centrality of the NATO alliance uh, to its defense posture and the need for a massive increase in spending to address address capability shortcomings. Joining us today, as they do every week to discuss all this and more, are Dr. Rocketron Epstein of Bank of America Merrill Lynch, Sash Tusa of the independent equity research firm Agency Partners in London, and Richard Abalafia of the Aerodynamic Advisory Consultancy here in Washington, D.C. Everybody, it wouldn't be Sunday without you guys. Thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, Vago, it's great to be here. Thanks. Yeah, always a pleasure, Vago. Thank you. Yeah, great to be on, Vago. Thanks. Uh, indeed, a pleasure. And before we get started, our global coverage is sponsored by Leonardo BRS. Fortress Information Security sponsors our weekly cyber report in Northrop Grumman, supports our cyber coverage overall. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage. Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage. And our coverage of the Association of the United States Army's annual meeting was sponsored by Leonardo DRS and Safran. And check out our two weekly podcasts, Cavus Ships, hosted by our contributors 
contributing editor, Chris Cavus, and our producer, Chris Cervello, who clear the fog on naval and maritime matters, and the downlink with our contributing editor, Laura Winter, who takes a thoughtful look at all things space. Uh, Ron, uh, start us off as you always do uh, on uh, the market, a very, very positive uh, week. Um, but, you know, consumer price index, I mean, it was great that it came in uh, lower than people expected, uh, raising uh, spirits that the economy might actually be in fundamentally better shape and that uh, the, the <laughs> combined with the wishful thinking uh, that the Fed uh, is going to forego further rate increases, central bankers don't reserve uh, reverse course, especially when they got a lot of heat uh, for not raising rates fast enough to try to stem inflation. Uh, in the first place. Walk us through some of the broader market dynamics uh, and uh, how the group performed uh, in contrast. Yeah, I mean, I think the, the two biggest market moving things this week, you mentioned there was uh, the CPI print, which came in at- uh, Ron, can you uh, can you talk a little bit louder, please? Thank you. Sorry. Sure, let me start. Okay, can, is okay. this better? Is this louder? That's a bit better, yes. I, I can scream if you want. Um, yeah, the, the, the two big market moving events this week were, the, were two that you mentioned already, the, the consumer price index print, which came in at 0.4% uh, for the month and uh, the, the withdrawal of uh, Russian forces from Kyrgyzstan. Uh On the CPI, uh, that was probably the single biggest thing, right? So that suggested 7% year over year inflation that came in below what um, folks were looking for. And you saw an immediate reaction in the bond market. The, the 10-year yield dropped from uh, 4.15 down to 3.8. That's, uh, to do the math quick, about a 35 basis point drop in you know, seconds. <laughs> uh, and then the market just reacted to that. So you saw uh, broadly on the week, um, uh, all the major indexes were, were up. Um, the, the biggest increase was in the in the Nasdaq uh, those stocks tend to be more sensitive uh, and but you know broadly the S&P was up on the week almost five percent when you look at our group uh, Boeing was up the most on the week at about seven and a half percent Raytheon was down uh, interestingly two and a half Lockheed was down five Northrop was down eight percent now all that had to do with the the uh, what happened to the Russian forces in Kyrgyzstan with the the retreat, uh, and that kind of bode well for the bode not so well for the defense stocks. So you saw this real this real crazy action in the market, where broadly the market was up, defense was down. Part of that had to do with the Russian thing. Part of that had to do with defense has been seen as a relative safe haven. Safe haven. Um, if you look at the XLI index, right, that's a, a broad market indicator of what's going on in industrial stocks. That that that. Two components are the are year to date. Um, one and two are Lockheed Martin and Northrop Grumman. Uh, they're performing the best uh, out of those. So you you're, you were seeing a little bit of I think some some rotation. Uh, the VIX index dropped uh, a lot uh, on the week. It dropped from roughly kind of the, the mid twenties to the to the low twenties. Uh, but but interesting, crude went up. So uh, WTI ended the week almost at ninety. Brent uh, ended the week at uh, almost 96. So, you know, there's hope for a soft landing. Um, but I just caution everybody, again, I'm not the economist, the strategist, 
But when you listen to uh, the economist and the strategist at, at, at Bank of America, just things don't change on a dime, right? So there's going to be some follow through. We'll see what happens. And then one other thing, because Friday was Veterans Day, the bond markets were closed, but the equity markets were open. So on Monday, when things open up, you'll get both markets to open. So you just saw some weird action on Friday because the bond market was just stuck where it was on Thursday. So we right. could see some rebalancing on Monday as people get back into the office. Uh, rebalancing, uh, very elegantly uh, put. Uh, before uh, we move on, because there's a lot to discuss about China and obviously uh, war and strategy uh, drivers, um, how did what are those, some of the questions you got from uh, investors on uh, the surprising midterm outcome? Right, I mean there was a sense Democrats were going to lose uh, both houses and lose big. Uh, instead, Democrats had a very positive uh, week. Uh, they it looks like they're going to lose the house, but not by much. And it looks like they're going to retain uh, the Senate. And some of the sentiment that we've heard uh, from Washington analysts is that this bodes well for not just for defense spending, but actually uh, for Americans, uh, continuing American support for Ukraine. What what are some of the questions and investor sentiments you can reflect? Yeah, I think the the biggest questions were, you know, if you look at most of the pundits before very, very recently, the thinking was maybe maybe the Republicans, the GOP gets the House and not the Senate. And then kind of in the last week, there was thinking, well, maybe the GOP gets both. Well, it kind of turns out it's you know case number one uh, and by a very slim margin, um, which sort of suggests, as you mentioned, that not not a heck of a lot changes. <laughs> right? right. But um, so we'll see. Um, we Definitely got questions about what midterms mean for uh, defense spending and government spending and priorities and so on and so forth. But the focus was the focus was that. Um, but I think you know you know you know for better or for worse, a lot of that just got eclipsed by the CPI, right? I mean, the CPI right. was a surprise and just drove a lot of volatility in the market. Uh, and names that tend to be more um, uh, um, sensitive to that sort of thing and have uh, you know higher beta, they call it. Um, this week, uh, CAE reported numbers, and they were you know, a little bit better than what people were thinking. But the stock ended the week up 21%. This is just a humongous move. And a lot of that had to do with the dynamics of the trading in the market. And, and names that were more volatile tend to, to swing bigger. Sash, uh, give us uh, an update in Europe, right? I mean, obviously, a lot of news flow, everything from uh, British uh, budget tightening uh, that we've talked a little bit about, and news continues to drip and drab uh, about that. Uh, We had France, uh, French President Emmanuel Macron, uh, unveiling uh, the country's new uh, defense strategy uh, that says, you know, NATO is core to French defense, but also makes the case uh, that there needs to be a lot more investment to improve capabilities in a dangerous world. Walk us through some of the themes uh, we saw in Europe. I mean, obviously, Kherson uh, and the Ukrainian victory was long uh, expected, but finally realized and seen as a humiliation for Russia, even though there's this sense that a negotiated solution isn't in the cards, right? Because Ukrainians are extreme. You know, the, the, every place that's liberated, the atrocities come out, and that just uh, further inflames passion, uh, passions that make a negotiated settlement a little bit harder uh, to you know, to to make palatable from a Ukrainian perspective, walk us through all of these themes uh, and how they were reflected in markets for the group. Well, look, I mean, the unpleasant ground truth that we're seeing in Ukraine doesn't stop investors from selling defense stocks whenever there's a major Ukrainian victory. Share prices, um, there was an incredible um, spread between uh, share prices of civil stocks this week in Europe. They were flat, absolutely plus or minus one or less than one percent. And defense stocks, defense stocks averaged off 
4% in Europe. But within that, BE Systems off 4, Dasso off 6, Hensolt off 8, Leonardo off 7, um, uh, you know, Kinetic off 8. You know, so there were some really big falls there. And that was all timed, driven by uh, the uh, fall of Kesson and perception among investors that this means that, if not, I mean, it, it may not be a negotiated settlement. It may just be that the US or Europe or both, you know, lose the will to support Ukraine at the level that is necessary for Ukraine to keep winning. And hence, the war sort of comes to an end at some stage and then European defense budgets just sort of come back down again. Um, so it was, a, it was, a, it was an, and it was an astonishing end to the week. I mean, it, there was red all over the screen uh, for the defense stocks. Um, uh, you know, so it, that, that was very, very striking. It's not often you get quite such a, um, a divergence between civil and military as, uh, as we saw this week. Yeah, in terms of other news, I mean, the other news had no effect on the stocks. Let's be absolutely clear about that. Nobody uh, even commented or asked us about, you know, British defence budget. Well, you know, the, 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 the Chancellor of the Exchequer of the UK is going to talk about all the budgets this week. And until then, everything is, it's not news, it's rumour. But, you know, it's like the, the rumour as of Sunday is defence budget will probably be flat for a couple of years. What is that absolute real have no idea and we won't know until Thursday but um, that that's the you know that's that's the way that people are are currently thinking France more interesting as you say uh, Emmanuel Macron talking very very positively about NATO's relationship with France and France's reliance on NATO as part of its defense budget um, the French defense budget is clearly going up but that was known anyway that's been talked about for about the last um, at least the last 12 months or so. So in fact, there was very little new in the budget outlook. What I think is impressive though, is that the French did this refresh of the sort of national defense strategy in under four months. That's, that's, I mean, just in terms of a bureaucracy that is functioning very, very well, they deserve huge kudos to that. By contrast, I, you know, the UK MOD seems incapable of producing a, um, a revision to the um, uh, current national security, uh, you know, defence review, partly because they're all embarrassed about being seen to have been so horribly wrong last time they put it out 18 months ago. Um, well, that's not how you're supposed to behave as a servant. You're supposed to tell it as you see it now. Um, but no, you know, the French deserve a lot of credit for, uh, you know, revising their strategy so quickly. But there wasn't any new money compared to expectations before the announcement. Right. Um, it's, it's interesting, right? What, what you said. And, uh, you know, I think we're all uh, um, fans of France uh, and its uh, strategic thinking capabilities and just an ability both on the industrial side and otherwise to sort of think longer term. Uh, and it's interesting that the U.S. defense strategy was delayed. It was supposed to come out earlier this year, was delayed. And then anybody involved in the delay acknowledges it didn't change all of that much for uh, the additional time. So you've got to give uh, credit to France for actually having moved quickly uh, at uh, a greater uh, speed of relevance uh, by getting uh, the document uh, out in time. Uh uh, Richard, um, I want you to start off the discussion uh, on uh, China. Uh, I want to walk through, um, you know, all of the news flow from uh, Zhuhai, whether the 919 uh, flight, um, you know, we knew the airplane worked, uh, the announcement of the new orders, uh, 330 uh, for that jet, as well as the ARJ-21, which might not necessarily be new, as well as Boeing's 
Um, uh, you know, I mean, everybody's got to announce something there, right? Uh, the Chinese announced that uh, Embraer's uh, E2 uh, was certified, just like uh, Boeing announced that it was going to do something with COMAC on sustainability matches somewhat what uh, President Biden is going to be talking about with Xi Jinping. Talk broadly, what are your expectations and want to quickly go around the horn uh, and get um, uh, Ron and Sasha's uh, take on this as well about what market uh, uh, and analyst expectations are that Joe Biden is reasonably going to come out? Uh, you know, what, what are we going to see from the, the Biden-Xi meeting uh, aside from what might be more rhetoric and actually relatively minor steps now that Washington fully acknowledges that almost every single thing the Chinese do is specifically to build military and economic capability against Washington uh, and its uh, allies. Richard, take it away on what you expect to, to see uh, from Bali tomorrow. Yeah, you know, it's going to be fascinating um, because, of course, there's a very wide range of outcomes and a lot going on in the background. You know, the sort of macro is that we've got selective decoupling. So with things like aerospace and satellites, telecoms, and most of all, semiconductors and chip making capabilities, it's absolute decoupling. Uh, now, in terms of everything else, it's uh, shades of gray and not a lot of desire to decouple because, of course, it's a very big market and they're a big part of the world economy. And there are other factors, you know, like uh, cooperation on climate change and whatever else that are hugely important to decision makers. Um, now, in the backdrop, you've got this definite trend that so far uh, European airplane makers have benefited hugely from being favored here. It's not just, of course, the big ramp up in Airbus orders and the, you know, when Olaf Schultz visited, there was, of course, the reconfirmation of another batch of 150 that was apparently part of the 300 they had ordered some time ago, but still, they're making great shows about it. Uh, similarly- and, and, Boeing, is, and Boeing has had no new orders since 2017, right? Which further yes. compounds the problem. And not only that, but of course, a number of false starts with max recertification in country, which makes it all the more obvious. And I would argue that the CAAC has now been exposed as being terribly politicized. Never a good idea for a safety agency, but there we are. It's basically, it, it, these are all political moves. And similarly, I think the certification of both the, the Embraer 190 and E2 and uh, the ATR 42-600 this week, that's all part of that. Basically, everyone except an American company does pretty well. So with all of that, the backdrop, you've got Xi and Biden meeting in Bali, as you say, you know, what's going to come out of it? Uh, part of it is that it's not on Chinese home turf, and they tend to favor people who come and see them, just like, just like Olaf Schultz resulted in, you know, the apparency, the, the, the you know, the, the great public attention paid to the Airbus reconfirmation. If they're simply meeting, I don't think it's realistic to expect them to say, oh, thank you for meeting with me in a third party place. Here is an order for Boeing Jets and, and confirmation of recertification. That's just not going to happen. I think it's more likely that basically there'll be some, some sort of vague, yes, trade is important. Yes, what can we do to de-escalate tensions? And that maybe this will result in the circumstance, uh, circumstances needed to get Boeing and, and America back in, in Chinese commercial aero good graces. But of course, there's an awful lot that's going on because, uh, as you say, there's this emerging, not emerging, but there's this firm bipartisan consensus that everything the Chinese are doing is towards furthering their military capabilities. And anything, no matter how vaguely dual use, is falling under a microscope. 
And that that is something the Chinese, of course, are acutely mindful of, too. So there's a great deal of tension. And I just I don't think there's going to be any easy resolution of it this week. That's for sure. And then, of course, you've got Zhuhai in the background with the C919 noise. And it's rather awkward for the Chinese to acknowledge this, of course. But, you know, the C919 exists purely at the U.S.'s good graces. And what's fascinating is that at Zhuhai, you have continued the continued absence of the MA700 as a thing. That, of course, was the plane that was killed by combined U.S.-Canadian action about a year and a half ago. There's no talk of replacing that Pratt and Whitney Canada engine with an alternative indigenous one or a Russian one or anything. They appear to be completely at sea. And so the sort of Damocles hanging over all of this is that, yeah, the C-19 could easily suffer the same fate unless the Chinese play ball. Uh, and I want to uh, get to that in a minute. I was I was going to make a note that there are some people who say, well, you know, we, we can still do a lot of trade uh, with China, especially in the form of, you know, lawn furniture or whatever. Tehran, right. Give me, give me uh, your sense and then Sash yours uh, on what sort of market expectations are uh, from this. Right. I mean, it's always good to have dialogue. Uh, we haven't been doing well on the dialogue uh, front. Uh, obviously, the Chinese have a tendency of severing. Uh, contacts in, as they did in the wake of Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan, right? What what is what does Wall Street expect? And and Sash, what does the city expect uh, from uh, from this meeting uh, and others, right? Because European leaders are also G20 meters me, leaders, and they too are going to be meeting with uh, Xi. Uh, go ahead, start us off, Ron. Yeah, I mean, I mean, broadly, at least from a, uh, an aerospace and defense perspective, I, I don't I don't think there's much expectation at all. Uh, you know, investors aren't expecting some sort of, as Richard alluded to, some sort of change to, you know, Boeing status with, with China or so on and so forth. So I would say expectations, at least in the A&D community uh, on Wall Street are, um, I won't, I don't want to call them low because that has some sort of meaning, just sort of non-existent, right? I mean, it's just right. that. <laughs> that was that was short, sweet, and uh, strangely to the point. Um, uh, Sash, I mean, is is it as short and sweet from a European perspective as well? Yep. Nobody, no, nobody from an aerospace and defense perspective has any expectations for G twenty. Curious. It's not. I mean, it's just not on people's um, radars at the moment. Um, I think there is a hope for the, the very small number of people who have thought about this. Uh, it would be a good G20 if uh, Presidents Biden and Xi came away without fighting in public. No more than that. But, you know, as long as they don't fight in public, um, that would be a pretty good outcome. But other than that, there's, there's no there's going to be, no, I think, nothing granular that's going that's going to come out that's going to affect uh, any of our stock. I'd like to come back to Xi Hai for a second, um, <clears throat> because having looked at the uh, you know, announcements for the C919 uh, orders are pretty opaque. But having just looked at the sort of the total number of orders that uh, China, you know, China has stated before they have for the program, it looked or looks as though the C919 has added about 150. Um, and I'm going to use the word orders in inverted commas, um, uh, you know, orders. There, there, there's a ton of commitments, letters of intent, you know, wishes, um, you know, messages to the tooth fairy under the, under the pillow and so forth. Uh, in the C919. But it's important to understand why this is. C919, airline orders of, uh, and genuine orders from Chinese airlines are pretty small, 50, about 50, 50 to 70 firm orders. Um, every single Chinese, uh, you know, large Chinese airline, particularly the, the three ugly sisters, they have to order 
five to 10 is their patriotic duty. They then add 15 to 20 um, options, again, patriotic duty. Everything else is ordered by the Chinese financial sector in the clear understanding that those aircraft will be placed at acceptable uh, lease rates with Chinese airlines in the future. Um, but it's the financial sector who's just got a you know bigger balance sheet, more opaque, so nobody really can really track what they're doing. They're the ones who are supporting um, the 919 program because this is how, how China works. If you look at 919 deliveries, <laughs> deliveries to airlines, certainly on our numbers, never, never get really above 30 aircraft even if you assume every single option is converted, about 30 aircraft in 26 or 27, um, and then it all runs out. But because there's about 550, 600 uh, commitments from leasing companies, they will be the people who can really um, uh, support 919 production, assuming that Comac can produce it and assuming that the US continues to supply the uh, all the parts and engines that it really needs, and both of those are are continue to be quite big questions. But you know, you could easily get deliveries to leasing companies and banks well over the hundred if everything else went well, uh, and right. that's what will make or break uh, the nine one nine as a commercial program in China. I don't think it'll ever sell outside China in a way that we need to talk about. Excellent uh, observation. Uh, and thanks very much for that uh, good uh, math. Uh, Richard, your sense right on the 919 uh, outlook, I mean, decoupling, you know, as you said, right, I mean, the program continues only by the good graces of the United States. And we're seeing uh, increasing decoupling sort of across uh, the, the board, whether in the administration's moves uh, against chip making technology uh, going to China uh, and what have you. So I think you have to be very, very reasonable uh, about what to expect, uh, even on climate uh, and on uh, sustainability. Talk to us a little bit about the 919, you know, and whether or not there's any relevant ARJ21 number in there. But um, as well as um, the Boeing uh, COMAC partnership agreement, which comes at a time when many people in Washington are looking at this and saying, you know, I mean, we, we, we know that Boeing has to do something and it's obviously very eager. Uh, you know, we talked about the, you know, the Boeing store and 55 uh, decades of business in, in China, even if somebody thought that was a bit tone deaf, ultimately they're in the business of selling jets and they have not been not only selling more jets to uh, China, uh, but also um, have uh, their most important airplane uh, grounded, uh, right? And so folks are looking at this and saying, all right, what does, you know, this cooperation between Boeing and Comac look like uh, ultimately that actually does no harm uh, at the end of the end of the day right talk to us about both of those themes and and Ron and Sash want to get your uh, sense as well not just on the 919 numbers but actually specifically the wisdom of what Boeing is doing with Comac or if, if it's just a rhetorical flourish that you do in an air show that's perfectly fine take it away yeah, you know, interesting stuff about the 919. I think it kind of shifts the narrative. A few years ago, a, a former Boeing CEO told me that, you know, we're the designated we're the designated hostage in any U.S. China trade standoff. <laughs> Great line. I, but I, I think we've actually turned 
the narrative on this. Welcome, C919. You are now the designated hostage in any U.S.-China trade standoff. Because again, as the MA700 shows us, it doesn't survive a cutoff. As a matter of fact, it ceases to become a plane. You could even argue it's not a Chinese plane at all. It's a Chinese skin and vinyl assembly over a collection of mostly U.S., but broadly Western parts and technologies that are absolutely essential. So you know, the more they ramp up to meet local demand, okay, what does that mean? That means closing the borders. That means violating trade agreements. That means making the trade deficit worse. The more likely we are to say, oh, military and you, sorry, you're toast. Uh, the more they subsidize exports in the unlikely event, as Sash says, the unlikely event, they actually do achieve a lot of exports. Well, there again, oh, military and you. So I think there's kind of a, a kill switch just embedded in this thing, again, designated hostage. So, you know, it's safe to say if you were to have a forecast of these things, They'll do 20, 30 a year, something like that, as some kind of face-saving exercise, not too different from what's become of the ARJ-21. Now, the ARJ-21 is a miserable piece of junk from a performance standpoint. The 919 might or might not be better, uh, so maybe they'll do a little better, better than that. But again, they got to be careful about numbers because with that comes the greater likelihood that they're going to be cut off. The Boeing-Juhai thing, oh boy, this is just tricky. I think it's an expansion of an agreement. You know, you look at their facility there, it's uh, carpeting and stapling and painting. It's hardly strategic. You know, you could argue that Airbus's Tianjin Faco is more strategic, but that was signed a long time ago. Hard to get rid of it. Uh, the expansion, sustainable aviation, that doesn't seem easily militarizable. I'll kind of defend them. I think almost all, all businesses are, are sort of feeling their way along. The Atlantic, uh, Michael Schumann uh, this week has a fantastic piece about how Elon Musk turns into a sycophantic pro-Chinese Communist Party guy whenever he goes abroad because he depends upon them both for production and market. And my point is not to criticize Elon Musk, although it, the article certainly implied that he should be criticized, but it's rather to say that everybody who's in the business of dealing with China on things of a technological nature and consumer goods and whatever else is really, it's, it's very difficult to feel your way along. And I think given that set of circumstances, the Zhuhai announcement that Boeing made, I'll defend them, it was probably the least bad of all the alternatives. Uh, in, indeed, uh, right. I mean, sometimes it is, uh, in the immortal words of uh, Jack Aubrey in Master and Commander, the lesser of two weevils uh, that you need to be uh, looking at. Uh, I love that line. Uh, corny, but you just got to love it. Anyway, uh, go ahead, uh, Ron. I mean, your, your take on this, I don't know how much more we have to beat it to death, but uh, take it away. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think Richard, Richard pretty much nailed it. I mean, really, the only thing I could add is, you know, it, it's an important aviation market. So, you know, given all the constraints that are right now geopolitically uh, and where Boeing falls out in that, I mean, if this is a just an attempt to try to warm things up somehow and, you know, it's done in a, uh, a way that's, um, you know, um, harmless, then, um, you know, you, you, I guess more power to them, right? I mean, ultimately, yeah. ultimately, right, I mean, Boeing's position in China um, now isn't isn't Boeing's fault, right? And they're just kind of caught. They're, they're really just caught in a crossfire. So, if they can put a little white flag up here and there, why not? Um, and on nine one nine and whatever the outlook. I mean, I know we we talk a lot about the program, uh, right? I mean, there is this uh, sense that the Chinese have actually been remarkably competitive uh, in gaining access to Western uh, technology, uh, right? I mean, at this point, 
uh, Chinese engineers are filing more patents uh, than uh, Americans are. And, and you're intimately familiar with uh, the aerospace ecosystem, right? I mean, once upon a time, uh, Ron, you know, folks were looking at Embraer and saying, look, these are just Kuiperinia sipping Brazilians. They, they can't possibly develop an aviation industry. And it, and it turns out they hired the best Westerner, you know, the best uh, American and European uh, and best engineers from around the world. But then they also made a concerted national effort uh, to focus their own aviation industry. And guess what? Embraer airplanes are as good as any airplanes being made on the planet, right? Sort of what's, what's your sense as you look downstream? Uh, yeah, know, I mean, are... I, think that, I think there's interesting, interesting takeaways, but some big differences um, with what Brazil did. Um, you know, Brazil co-located, and that's not to say that the Chinese haven't a major technical university with where, where Embraer is. It was a, it was a huge push. Um, and then all the way back to Santos Dumont, I mean, there's a cultural thing about flight in Brazil, right? So it's, there's a cultural piece to it too. Right. Um, not, not that there isn't in China, but um, it, uh, as far as I know, it's, it's well, but Santos right? Dumont was a, right. I mean, one of the greatest, great aviation uh, yeah, I mean, there's a debate right? who, was flew, who flew, yeah, who flew first, and so on and so forth, right? But it, it's a strong cultural affinity for flight in Brazil. Um, not that that doesn't mean that they, they didn't couldn't have messed it up, but they really executed on this thing pretty well. And and I would argue, given um, you know Embraer's balance sheet and the country of Brazil's balance sheet, it kind of forced Embraer to do things maybe better than had they not been in Brazil. Um, so if you look at number of aircraft, they tend to be actually really, really good because they, they sort of have to be. Um, if something like the Max happened to Embraer, it would, the, the, you know, game over for them, right? So that just couldn't ever happen to them. And they know that. Um, when, when you look at China, right, it's bigger, much bigger endeavor, bigger country, bigger balance sheet, more resources, many more engineers. Um, it is, you know, as far as we know, a priority. And, you know, my, my sense is it's just a matter of time that this, this version of 919, this uh, uh, has a lot of Western stuff on it. You know, there'll, there'll be future variants that won't. Um, will China have a native engine industry eventually? Yeah, of course they will. will. They do their own avionics. Of course they will. That'll take time, right? So it's just, you know, it's a matter of, of, of when, uh, when that all plays out. Um, when you talk to uh, the AVIC people or the COMAC people, they've been pretty much, you know, there's this, this concept that, maybe they could do hundred airplanes a year, right? So could you, could you see Comac in a market that's, I don't know what you want to call normalized deliveries for narrow body aircraft. And, you know, Sash, correct me if you disagree, maybe, I don't know, somewhere 130 airplanes plus or minus 10 airplanes, something like that for, um, you know, true narrow body aircraft, you know, could, um, you know, could China do single digits numbers of those of that market sure why not you know could they do seven eight a month yeah sure sure why not um you know when um i'm not sure that would seven or eight you know nine one nines a month really upset balances of trade in the u.s probably not i would guess um so we'll see where it all goes but i think discounting the 919 in the chinese market is a mistake because even if it's not the one that gets it it'll be its you know, progeny that will. Sash and Richard, uh, any uh, last comments you guys want to make to that before we go to uh, Bulgaria and uh, Indonesian F-15s? You know, Ron might well be right, uh, but I think there's one massive divergence between China and Brazil. Brazil, the number one lesson is go shopping. 
every engineer should go shopping and, and decide what are the best systems and technologies. And that's how Embraer got so great. Dell computer model. Basically, you integrate what the world gives you and it's, you're part of the global ecosystem. China, the exact opposite of that. It's the Soviet model. Basically, we will deal with anybody who gives away the, our tech, their technology and they no longer have it. So people show up with their latest and best from 1985. And the consequences, well, the consequences were the ARJ21 designed with those parameters in mind. C919 only marginally better. They're the anti-Embraer. Embraer was successful for doing the opposite. China is monumentally wasteful because they're doing something very different. Um, I would also say um, that um, you know no, nobody uh, in Brasilia is, is sitting there with a nefarious plan to sort of upend the global order and, and use, you know, Embraer, the technology to develop the newest generation of anti-F-22 fighter technology, right? Exactly. Uh, and so that it's, it's also a, a, a very uh, big uh, and important, right? I mean, despite the rhetoric, the relationship between the two com- uh, countries uh, remains, and, and, and really many countries around the world re- remain, uh, remain strong. Uh, go ahead, especially now in the post-Bolsonaro era. Go ahead. Uh, uh, Sash, uh, you also wanted to uh, ha- make an ad. Yeah, no, I know. Mean, I, I just wanted to say, I think, I think Ron's estimate, you know, if, if China could do 130 C919s a year, if Comac could, del- to, could produce those and deliver them successfully, that would be a remarkable achievement. I think what, what has been fascinating about C919 and the ARJ21 programs so far is despite the fact they start, in the case of the ARJ, ARJ21, with the DC9 or something called MD, if you if you want to be uh, to sort of sugar the uh, the pill a bit, and with the C919, where they start with all the really tough stuff being given to them by the West, these programs have taken longer than they expected, and uh, production and delivering these things at a high rate is not something that China has any experience of whatsoever. You know, 120, 130 uh, uh, 919s. That would be a a delivery every two days, that would be a remarkable achievement. Delivery is really hard. If you talk to customers about what they're getting from Boeing and Airbus at the moment, I mean, Airbus were very clear about this at their, um, uh, you know, their capital markets day, just, you know, trying to keep the number of pages of identified faults down when you're running hard is, is hard. Uh, the leasing companies were talking about it from the other side. So, you know, I think that's a big ask for China. I expect that's the second half of this decade if everything goes well. Um, uh, but then the question is, how fast is the Chinese market growing and where are they getting their capacity from? They probably have to come back to, to Boeing through, you know, uh, Griffith Tea. No, go ahead, Ron. Yeah, just one, one point I would add, and this is the only thing that kind of gives me a little, little pause when, also when we compare to Brazil. I agree 100% with Richard and, uh, Brazil did it right, right? If you're going to try to do it. And a lot of, and I think Richard, you gave a presentation once kind of suggested that Gembraer was like really the only startup airplane company. How, how many years was it? 70 years it actually survived. Right. Um, so, you know, the odds are if you're going to start up an airplane company, it's going to fail. Um, the, I think one key difference though with China is if you look at Brazil's GDP, it's about the size of the state of New York. China's is a lot bigger than that. China's got deep, right. deep, 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 deep pockets. Um, and they can afford to waste a lot of money, <laughs> right? right? They can afford to do it wrong for a long time before they get it right. Um, Brazil couldn't. So, I mean, I, I think that's that's a, a key difference. And, and if you look at, you know, Russia's economy now, back then, it was really small. So, you know, doing it the Russian way 
in an economy that's the size of the state of New York is a lot different than doing it the Russian way in an economy that's starting to rival the size of the U.S. Um, and if you uh, look uh, at uh, and uh, and hopefully on Tuesday uh, we're going to have uh, Chris Miller, the author of uh, Chip Wars, uh, on the program uh, to um, uh, talk to us a little bit about the economic competition as part of our strategy uh, series uh, between the two countries and what are lessons that can be learned from the chip industry. It, it's just it's strategically important. So the Chinese are willing to spend the kind of money that almost nobody you know. Right. I mean, they're spending an enormous amount of money and are willing to spend enormous amounts of money and do it through, you know, five layer sheep dipped companies uh, where uh, their capital is involved in the acquisition and the uh, and the uh, uh, the theft of of technology. Right. I mean, so if you've got a lot of money to spend, you can actually waste a lot of it uh, as long as you're moving the needle somehow. Um, you know, is, is what matters. Um, we are uh, running painfully short on time. And so we're going to go into a bit of a lightning round. Richard, uh, talk to us a little bit about, about the Bulgarian Block 70 uh, order for F-16s, eight airplanes. The, the country already operates, um, I want to say eight, nine dozen of the jets. I'm, I'm sorry, I, my memory is a little bit rusty. And now Indonesia is interested in F-15s, uh, which is potentially good news for Boeing, especially as the president of the United States visits uh, with uh, these leaders. Uh, but now there's a financing question. Walk us through what either of these deals mean mean for uh, not just Bulgaria and Bulgarian capabilities, uh, but also for Lockheed's line. And then what it means if uh, this uh, Boeing order goes through. Yeah, continues to be the world's strongest arms market, I would argue, um, combat aircraft. And it's the strongest combat aircraft market in, in decades. Um, and, you know, you look at that neglected middle market, the sort of non-top end, non, you know, twin jet, non F-35 market, it's, it's doing pretty good too. And the problem is, of course, the F-16 line keeps getting delayed, keeps getting delayed. It looks like they're not going to deliver any planes now till like 2024. Bahrain now says 2024. Bulgaria is piling on Morocco. Taiwan, most of all, the reinvention of their air force depends upon these planes. Really nothing till 2024. And then the ramp up will probably be painful too. So yet another part of the industrial, you know, out uh, supply chain that that's just hampered by all kinds of production difficulties. Um, the F-15 deal in Indonesia upset by finding that's bizarre because if you're going to go for if you're buying F-15s, you generally have the finance ready. I mean, these are incredibly expensive aircraft. I think you've got to take the Indonesian announcement with a grain of salt because they've also looked at KF-21s committed to them, I think, and Rafales. And I think they were talking V-22s, whatever else. So uh, they look kind of like the, the customers from back, you know, ancient uh, supermarkets who uh, would, um, you know, go in and try it out and put things in a cart and then, uh, you know, then just leave the cart there. Uh, <laughs> it doesn't look like that's going to happen. But nevertheless, <laughs> the fighter market is very strong. Um, I, I just love the analogy, right? Uh, people filling up supermarket carts, but they don't really have a money but it's like oh i would like to have this if i could if i could um i'd gladly take two f-15s today uh, and play pay you on tuesday i'm not so, I, I think it's worth pointing out that, that sorry that was a, yeah. that was a joke for any of you who uh were laughing on the inside go go ahead sash yeah i, I think it's worth just pointing out that that's that's pretty much what's happened with the uh indonesian order for rafael remember um 2019 the uh indonesia sorry 2020 the indonesian's order 
42 Rafales. I mean, one of the, I think, you know, third, fourth biggest order for Rafales ever. Um, this was a major triumph for French, uh, French sales and diplomacy and everything else. Um, and then the aircraft did not appear in the backlog for Dassault Aviation and for its subcontractors. And finally, in the third quarter of this year, six of those 42 aircraft appeared in backlog. I, all they could find the financing for was six out of 42. Uh, the other 36 will come at an undisclosed, indeterminate time in the future when they can find the money. Um, on that basis, if I were Boeing, I would not, not be cracking open champagne or whatever it else, uh, else it is that they want to uh, drink there. I would be very, very careful until either this is covered fully by, um, you know, FMS or, or some other form of US vendor financing, or they've actually got real hard cash in, uh, on, on deposit. Because I, uh, I was quite shocked at the degree to which the Indian Indians did not, or you know, have not so far carried through with the Rafale order. That should be a real warning for um, it would uh, likely be a fruit juice, uh, depending uh, on where you are and who you're having it with, uh, of course. Uh, and Sash, you guys get the, the last word, and we've got about two minutes left in the program. Talk to us a little bit about South Korea uh, right in the proxy war that's uh, evolving and the military role that South Korean industry is now playing. Sash brought this up, uh, has brought this up repeatedly in terms of the South Korean ability to flex uh, and deliver munitions in a way that Western industry is having a little bit of a challenge challenge doing that. K-9 Thunder obviously going tremendous uh, self-propelled howitzer that's going to the polls. Uh, walk us through a little bit about what you see uh, in the emerging um, role of South Korean industry. And then, uh, Sash, really quickly, give us your sort of mi military update on, on where you, know, you think uh, we stand uh, as uh, Ukrainian forces liberate Kherson, which is uh, obviously very, very important at, at a time when the climate uh, there is changing. Uh, go ahead, uh, Richard, and then Sash. Yeah, talk about being in the right place at the right time. You know, something like a decade ago, they had alighted upon arms and defense, actually probably more like 20 years ago, as sort of a key uh, industrial strategy, not just for national security reasons, but also from uh, an, an industrial economic uh, export uh, standpoint. And uh, so you've got all this capacity coming online just when the rest of the world is completely out of industrial capacity for defense products, hence the deal with artillery shells this week paid for by the U.S., but ultimately going to Ukraine proxy, as you say. But also, of course, you've got the Polish deal for F-A-50s and, uh, and, and tanks and, 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 of course, the artillery, artillery uh, systems, whatever else. So right place, right time. You look at the numbers, I think their defense exports basically doubled over the last year, something like that. And uh, they're probably just going to keep growing. Because, uh, again, they've got a lot of capacity coming online when a lot of other people are completely tapped out. And uh, Sash, uh, take it away and bring us home. Yeah, I mean, look, the artillery order is incredibly important. I don't think there's any co other company or even country in the world that can deliver 100,000 rounds of 155 millimeter ammunition pretty much from stock. I mean, that really is uh, an astonishing um Achievement. I mean, uh, that will clearly be backfilled by Korean industry later, but um, that is hundreds of millions of dollars, probably half a billion dollars worth of ammunition at uh, current prices. And, um, you know, absolute kudos for them for having a having the capacity and b having the stocks, uh, the war stocks out of which they uh, can deliver that stuff. Um, contrast that with, uh, you know, with Europe, Germany, for example, Germany has less than five days of stocks of ammunition, which is sort of a, a few hundred rounds, perhaps 500 rounds per gun. So 
uh, they probably couldn't even supply that many rounds if they emptied all of their bunkers entirely. Um, same would go for France and the UK. Um, so, you know, this really does highlight how important uh, Korea has become as an industrial uh, supplier of equipment and also as a, you know, po politically as well. As to how the war is going, the, you know, the Russians did the, they did the smart thing, which was to withdraw from Kherson before it was taken from them. It, uh, the, you know, a fight in Kherson would have been bloody for both sides, but the Russians would have lost um, uh, manpower and equipment they cannot afford to lose. And what they've now done is to withdraw to more defensible positions on the other side of the Dnieper River. Um, the going gets very, very tough for, for everybody from here because uh, we're now in the season of mud and that probably lasts for at least the next four weeks until things freeze up again. Um, and if based on last year, you know, it could be muddy through, through most of the winter. So I think things slow down from here. I would be watching for where the Ukrainians say they are next going to attack, because wherever it is they say they're next going to attack, they won't. They'll attack somewhere else right. and they'll be really smart about it. But in the meantime, I think that the main focus of the, of the war for Ukraine has got to be to establish adequate air defences against... Um, Iranian-supplied drones and, indeed, cruise missiles uh, direct from, from Russia, because those are having a very corrosive effect on the Ukrainian will and ability to fight because they they are shutting down large amounts of the uh, Ukrainian power and heating network, and that really matters during winter. And uh, very briefly, uh, Ron, um, you've been listening to all of these earnings calls uh, from a capabilities uh, and supply chain standpoint and a new order standpoint, what, what is the kind of the key takeaway you've been getting from listening to all these companies, right? Because the United States is saying, you know, we really do need to ramp up in a dramatic fashion, but the industry has been waiting for the Pentagon to spend money in order to help them ramp up and, and facilitize and increase production rates. And they want firm orders, uh, which is not unreasonable. Um, you know, what's, what, are, what are some of the broader messages uh, that uh, you investors are taking away and that the industry is delivering? Yeah, I mean, I mean the, the industry, you're starting to see this in, in order activity. You're starting to see some orders for things like MLRS and so on and so forth start to pick up that this is really kind of a 2023 story. Uh, for the U.S. contractors uh, replenishing, um, you know, U.S. stockpiles, and that's pretty much what the companies are saying that we'll see this in 23 and 24. Um, but anybody who expected it to happen immediately in 2022, that just wasn't going to happen. That wasn't in the cards. And if and if you look at orders, uh, you know, like we do uh, as they come out of the uh, Department of Defense, you're starting to see that happen. Things get replenished. Um, I think it's slower than people were anticipating, but but it is in, happening in earnest. Guys, thank you very much for joining us. It's always a pleasure. I uh, hope you guys have a great uh, day, a great week, and look forward to having you back on again next week. Thanks so much. Great to be here, Vago. Thanks. Yeah, as always, thank you very much, Vago. Yeah, really appreciate it, Vago. Thanks.